Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am doing a special edition for Twin Peaks. The first part is an essay on the original series and its current cultural context. And the second part is a discussion with my friend James Poulos, author of The Art of Being Free, How Alexis de Tocqueville Can Save Us From Ourselves. Recently, the new season of Twin Peaks wrapped up, and endless praise has been heaped upon the finale, closing scenes, the unexpected, incomprehensible ending, and especially on David Lynch, not so much on co-writer Mark Frost, which is surely an injustice. The people doing the praising have ferociously avoided giving interpretations for the most part. This is not entirely impossible to understand or excuse, because the work seems to defy interpretation. We have not been faced before with almost 18 hours of complex symbolism without explicit keys for interpretation in some strange relation to a show made 27 years ago. Well, this is our situation as middle-class thrill-seekers in the age of prestige storytelling. We suspect we've just witnessed the most important statement our popular culture is able to make about why we're so fearful about the future, but we daren't interpret it. Maybe Lynch and Frost have offered such a cipher to spare us some trouble to give us an easy excuse. We can embrace or reject their 18-hour movie without having to think about it with any clarity. And why think about it? After all, Twin Peaks is also a response to a world where prestige intelligence is codified from childhood as critical skills or critical thinking, which is worthless at the best of times, and certainly no use in interpreting works of art that nevertheless affect us in a deep personal way. If it's not silly partisanship, our habit of applying criticism only to the things we oppose but not those we favor, it's nevertheless explaining things by explaining them away, as though it were the job of intelligence to prove that being human is nothing mysterious. This is perhaps why Twin Peaks insists so much on dreams and the poetic logic of turning sequence into causality. Frost and Lynch want to turn their audience around, bring them back to an awareness of how perplexing our situation really is. We maybe don't know exactly why we do what we do, and we may perhaps have to reflect on what gets us to act in the first place, even if act mistakenly so that we can later through our experience correct some of those mistakes. Reflection is therefore past-oriented as the show is continuously bringing up its old characters and stories to reflect on them and perhaps to deepen them. We should try to understand Twin Peaks, although it is now a minority taste. It was, however, a national phenomenon in post-Cold War America. Airing in 1990 and 1991, the show both satisfied the national taste and tried to educate the anxieties of the time. This took a dark turn fairly quickly, because the story, as opposed to the show, is all about how knowledge is not innocent. America loved the story of the murder of Laura Palmer, because America loves a good mystery, provided the good guy wins and up until the inevitably happy end, secretly loves the ugliness of life which is usually concealed. But the show died a quick death, caught in a conflict between creator studio and audience. The creators wanted to deepen the mystery. The network feared bad ratings and forced an untimely revelation of the identity of Laura Palm's murderer. The audience, of course, was caught in between. 
they loved the thriller, but they felt they deserved answers. And without answers, how long can you trust that your poets will give you worthwhile stories? The people loved the revelation and then abandoned the show for good, because what's the point now that you know the ending? The network cancelled it promptly before it ran for two full seasons, and the audience never had a chance to see what the entire national furor had been about. Welcome to Hollywood at its finest. Since then, even police procedurals have turned into horror shows, and of course serial killers are a recurring feature of the nation's dark fantasies. The strange normality that TV used to enforce on the public imagination has been ruined. There is no coherence to the public imagination left, therefore. This makes it difficult to understand how powerful the combination of innocence and violence was in 1990. We haven't seen anything better since, but we've become jaded by endless disappointments. Happily, Lynch and Frost give us a way to go back after enough time has passed for us to be able to see the story with fresh eyes, and a way to go forward from there to the new revelations. And hopefully all the chatter online will end with us calling ourselves the Twin Peaks generation, bookended as we are by fears of lost innocence and a lost future. The beginning of wisdom about Twin Peaks is this. It was the show that tried to teach America that pop culture is not innocent, and that it is not shallow either. It is capable of giving an account of man's essential predicament, morality, and of reflecting on society. The show took the lowest or most popular things and showed that within them lie deep questions and some insights about what it means to be American. Twin Peaks was simultaneously a satire and an honest attempt to work in the genres Americans loved. The soap opera, for example, the coming-of-age story, the detective story, and the mystery story. This may sound all postmodern or deconstructionist, but it also has a clear moral center. As early as episode 3, we have a perfect cinematic statement. The local sheriff and the FBI forensic expert are quarreling over the corpse of Laura Palmer. Protagonist Dale Cooper has to arbitrate this fight, and here for the first time we see his soul torn apart in a way that will have the strangest consequences. He loves the town and sides with the sheriff, who called Cox the arrogant, impious scientist. The sheriff is a good, just man, but has no idea what evil dwells in his town. On the other hand, the scientist the FBI has brought in can raise very important questions, even if he's as ignorant about the darkness of human nature as anyone in that small town. I will talk more about this episode and what it means later. For now, let us see what the audience sees. On display is America. This is the importance of the scene. These awful alternatives. You can restore the civil peace by literally burying the ugly truth. Or you can discover the truth about the good and evil in America, including perfect small town coffee and cherry pie America, by desecrating a body, which is what science always does. None of the characters realize this. Take your pick. This is how Lynch and Frost began to teach us that we have arrived at a very dangerous moment. We are learning that our obsession with respectability has given cover to monstrous evil and is now blinding us to the truth about that evil. We cannot go forward to restore lost innocence. All we can do is learn to live with evil in order to protect the innocent or at least the helpless. But that means living up to what we hope respectability says about us. It does not mean hiding behind presumed respectability in order to avoid seeing ourselves as we are. 
FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper wants to believe everything is so pleasant and perfect in Twin Peaks in order to avoid the question of evil, which itself summoned him there in the first place. Frost and Lynch show us, by juxtaposing evil with the goodness of normality, what this problem really means. Think about the obsession with coffee and pie. These are good things, but they also become symbols, and then they become really questionable. Coffee is about getting energy and getting more time out of the day, about rejecting idleness in favor of productive work. What's more All-American than that? Well, Dale Cooper comes to his first crisis by staying up for a couple of days. With his usual pedantry, what's more All-American than Enlightenment, the scientific conquest of nature? He nevertheless says, without rest, the brain succumbs to temporary psychosis. Even the emphases matter, although we all know what he means. Talk of rest or sleep brings up, but leaves unmentioned, dreams. Even Americans have dreams they cannot control. But then again, Americans tell each other to follow their dreams. Where do those dreams lead? Hence the other emphasis, that the madness of sleeplessness or being awake too long is temporary. Hopefully. Pi, on the other hand, is about motherhood, about the homespun, about what's safe and unchanging and good in a country dedicated to individual freedom, where you're always on the move and usually on the make. Where, in short, we have come to redefine opportunity not as the safety of port, of sailing in from the stormy seas, but as danger, going out in pursuit of some perhaps illusory advantage. Pi cannot be enjoyable or good, it has to bear the burden of the uncertainties of the age. So also every reality is turned into something virtual. Every story or person is turned into a symbol. That's what we get if we try to live out fantasies. Having defeated its Cold War enemy, America turns inward to see what it has become in the process. The only military character in the show seems an absentee father and an absolute joke of a man, spouting well-meaning psychological jargon at a son who's dancing with the devil. But he turns out also to be a man of shocking insight and goodness. In our self-obsession, we can despise authority, but we shouldn't. We just need to learn how to deal with the fact that even authority falls short of what we need. We have to face up to the chaos inherent in our freedom. The FBI, personified by Dale Cooper at first, is also ridiculous. He acts as though there's no evil, and therefore that knowledge is ultimately innocent. He revels in a good-natured way in revealing fact after fact and strange deduction or induction after strange deduction or induction. He always has more things to say and he always goes cheerfully to find new things. He doesn't see, however, into himself. The closest thing he has to a conscience is the recordings he sends to his assistant Diane. He doesn't see, for example, that he is beginning to love Laura Palmer, and that this is not entirely innocent. He does not see that his love of Twin Peaks, the town, is not entirely innocent either. Learning the truth and insisting that these things are pure, perfect places and people, these cannot go together ultimately. He is divided in himself between truth and justice in a way similar to the respectable lie and desecrating truth I mentioned before. I conclude my first thoughts on what Twin Peaks meant in America and what it was intended to show. After 27 years, a third season was greenlit, produced and distributed in the old fashion of TV on a weekly basis, rather than in the new fashion of the internet series, which emerges all at once and could be binge-watched. 
no one should binge watch 18 hours of David Lynch because the psyche is not prepared to deal with that. Too much fear and confusion alternating with anxious boredom at stories we do not fully grasp would overwhelm us. In the new series, Norma, with her diner, has become a franchise. There are at least half a dozen of these diners now, all of them, the company insists, should bear her name, whereas she would rather keep her diner's name as it was when she took it over. She is famous for her natural products, for the care she puts into her cooking, and apparently this is now no longer the fantasy of a Dale Cooper, but the fantasy America is trying to consume. This is why this is franchising. In our times, we desperately wish to mass-produce the homespun, to reproduce care within a new fantasy of capitalism for the benefit of the uprooted, those who have no community. So the new show is full of the disappointments these characters have undergone even as they have become famous, at least for a dedicated base of fans. Three things therefore seem to me to characterize Twin Peaks. A morally serious reflection on what it means to face evil. A melancholy mood, the term return, is ironic. There is no going back, although we cannot help but attempt it and the deep concern, hard to express or to measure, with the character of evil. Is there something in our situation now that's uniquely dangerous? Are we in some troubling way less able to cope with evil than we were before? Or maybe ourselves the progenitors of a new, greater evil? My friend James Poulos and I talk sometimes about this. He is a David Lynch enthusiast and I have learned more than a little about Lynch from him. He has graciously accepted to have a conversation with me for the ACF podcast. James, let's start talking about the morally serious question of hero and damsel in distress, of the victims of evil and the champions who want to stand against evil. You've been telling me you are quite impressed with David Auerbach's theory of the case, his interpretation of Twin Peaks in light of the finale of season 3, The Return, and that it's getting quite an airing. Retweeted by Kyle McLaughlin himself. His grand unified theory, as he calls it, of the finale. And he makes the following comment, which seemed to me to be fairly fruitful. The tragedy of Laura Palmer is that no one wanted her to die, yet everyone caused her to suffer. The revelation of episode 18 is that her tormentors now include Cooper among them. That Laura is sort of a bait for the real villain in the story. Who killed Laura Palmer ultimately becomes the MacGuffin Lynch and Frost originally intended it to be. The question who killed Laura Palmer led both characters and viewers astray, distracting from the more important and more compassionate question, who or what is Laura Palmer? Yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm not sure I figured out the whole story arc, but one part of it is, I think, fairly obvious that the obsession with solving the murder is at some level an obsession with doing away with the character. It's trying to say that Laura Palmer didn't really matter after all, something just happened. Oh, that you can... That you can say that this thing happened and this guy did that for that reason and this is how it worked out and that's what it was. You thought it was a mystery, but it wasn't really. We've gotten used to saying it's a good thing to have closure. But in fact, I think Lynch is inviting us or maybe pushing us to consider that closure is not always a good thing and that it may even be an illusion and a dangerous one at that. Yeah, it's not innocent. The 
at some level ambiguity about what happens and what's of importance to us while we take this kind of show seriously is no longer a matter of figuring out what about ourselves makes this plausible. Why would we even pay attention? Starting to something else is trying to explain it a way to say while there was uncertainty, there was something in us that moved that we weren't thrilled with. But when once you remove the uncertainty with a plausible answer, then there's nothing left in your heart to trouble you. Nothing was stirred by this scary thing. Well, then it becomes a sort of Aristotelian fiction with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you can use it to purge your emotions and then leave the theater and go about your day. Yeah, that seems to be the expectation here, that you can have a mystery, we live peaceful, comfortable lives, but there's something stirring in us, egging us on to find out deep, dark things, but then you can just put it all aside. It was all just a momentary fleeting thought you had. The alternative to that would uh, imply that maybe there is something in us that's deep, dark, and scary. So the story of Twin Peaks starts from this girl is killed, what does she represent in this town, to something else. How could it be that this would happen in the first place? If the cherry pie and good coffee Americana is true, if the delusions of respectability could be rock-ribbed, tough and hard and real and solid, then this shouldn't have happened in the first place. I'll give a concrete example of this from the first Twin Peaks season. In episode 3, you have literally a fight over the corpse of Laura Palmer. There is the sheriff, who's a good guy, Truman. How all American is that? And he wants to take the corpse to a funeral. And then there's Rosenfeld, the strangely bellicose pacifist, scientist, the forensic, who wants to desecrate the body to find out the truth. And Cooper is supposed to arbitrate in between them. He loves the town and what it stands for, but he also loves the truth. Doesn't think at all that they might not go together. Just like he never thinks that his love for Laura might not be innocent. And so he's supposed to arbitrate literally between building the respectability, the closure, the moral self-awareness and self-confidence of the community on hiding the truth, burying it. Or on the other hand, you could get the truth from science and it would start with the desecration of a corpse. Take your pick. You know, it's interesting. We have this unanswered question, one among many, as to what degree is Laura a martyr and to what degree is she a victim? As the series progresses, that nagging question that you raise about how Cooper is supposed to reconcile these things, it begins to crystallize as this dilemma. Is the only way out of the dilemma for him to become a sort of martyr as well? And is it possible to trace in his behavior and in the tuggings of the plot a sort of slippage into martyrdom, where he realizes that in fact, those two things cannot be reconciled, and that in order to keep one from threatening or damaging the other, he has to sacrifice himself. There's a lot to that, because the integrity of Cooper cannot depend ultimately on his opinion about what a lovely town Twin Peaks is. He would not have been there in the first place if that fantasy were the truth of things. So the fantasy of this Americana is posterior, after a shocking thing happens. It is a reaction to a catastrophe and a reaction that wants to avoid the tragic situation where you might have to sacrifice yourself. It's not first innocence that you then shatter when it turns out the Twin Peaks is not heaven on earth. The weirder thing about it is that his love for Twin Peaks is the reason he should sacrifice himself. 
The fact that he can pursue this mystery and retain that conviction spells out what he's supposed to do if he's going to make it possible at all for Twin Peaks to go on after this shocking thing that has happened that has removed all innocence from the place. You end up hunting in people's houses for the smell of blood. After that has happened, how could this be made right if nobody's willing to sacrifice for somebody else? you would end up thinking that there's a reason Twin Peaks wanted an outsider. He would be gullible. He would not see the sin that lies inside. He'd be deluded by respectability. Either way, Twin Peaks is not what he thinks it is, and it cannot go on as what it actually was. Maybe it was just a town where something weird happened that gradually turned from weird to something scary and then outright evil. But you can't take that back. Solving a murder mystery would not take that back. You cannot turn time back. You cannot remove from experience what it does to change. No, there's also a persistent ambiguity in just the agency of almost all the characters, some of whom are effectively useless as far as the plot is concerned, except for a few scenes or a few brief arcs. Some of whom, from one standpoint, appear to be quite heartwarming and figures of stability and authority, from another standpoint, seem strangely helpless or paralyzed or passive or consumed with melancholy. There's something in the nature of the town as it's been created and presented to us that pulls us as interested parties into that dilemma too. To some extent, we are pulling for that traditional mystery story arc. We're pulling for the arc of the hero's journey. And part of us is also just pulling for the dream to continue indefinitely. I just finished rereading for the first time after it came out now, I guess, 11 years ago, Thomas Pynchon's longest book, Against the Day, which is deeply concerned with light versus darkness and grace and salvation and the suspension of time and time is an enemy, all those themes, some of which intersect with the themes that preoccupy Lynch's imagination. This is a book that's, I think, about 1,100 pages, and I just finished rereading it about an hour ago. And there's this great sadness that comes upon one when a book that you love ends. The story will not go on um, other than in your imagination, but even that can never replicate the experience itself. It's like a death in a way. You can go back and re-experience it, but it will always end the same way. And that longing to just see the story end in a different way, which doesn't really make sense, of course, but is still this powerful longing. And so one thing that has stayed with me as I've tried to just sit with the end of the series, which seems to be the end, at least for now, is that burden that seems to be lingering on so many of the characters in the show. The burden that necessarily weighs on me, the viewer, me, the fan, me, a creative person who is also going to die one day and is aging into time and has projects, some of which have moved faster than others, and some of which might take far longer than you would think to come to fruition. Yeah, so I've been thinking recently about this problem with the books too. That on the one hand, you yearn for a kind of completion. You want to know how this ends. We want our stories to teach us about the completeness of action and the completeness of life. Precisely because we're so aware that our own lives are too chaotic. Running up against mortality is not necessarily constant fear of death, but it is necessarily an awareness of how unpredictable life is. There's no future tense to experience. Experience. You have no idea what's going to happen. 
poetry seems to fix that. It gives completeness to action and then to life. It seems to tell you therefore what to be human is. But on the other hand, there hangs upon story a certain expectation that the mystery will deepen, that as you chase it, something there will emerge that is more important than any puzzle you could think up. As you get closer to the end of the story, there's an inevitable disappointment of this other expectation. You can't have both the completeness of human life and action and on the other hand a certain sense of grace or of being blessed. There's a contradiction there between wanting human powers to be understandable and adequate to their task and on the other hand wanting to be delivered from a crisis or a predicament. And it's a contradiction that we are stuck with in virtue of who we are. Yeah, it seems this develops through American fiction from the thriller and the horror onwards that when you start with what you think is a terrible but essentially solvable problem that you could think in terms of a number of actions Accidents. It's just somebody did something because of the circumstances. And then when you figure out enough of the details, you can piece together the rest of the circumstances. And then it's over. But what starts at that kind of mystery turns into another kind that has to do with how it is possible for us individually and collectively to even end up in that situation. By the time we start asking about how something terrible could have happened, it's already too late. We already are the kinds of people who inflict and incur terrible things that might be beyond comprehension. And storytelling somehow involves this complicity. If you can create a story where you suggest something terrible, some mystery, and people are drawn into it, and they kind of make sense of it, well, that came out of them. That's supposed to bring out something that's deeply troubling about who we are. It's not put into us. It's not a scare in the sense in which somebody coming up on your unawares scares you. It's a scare in the sense in which something comes out of you. The artist is supposed to be able to bring up and deal with it somehow, but it didn't put it there in the first place. This is the story of Hamlet as well. Even if you get heroism right, even if you listen to the ghost of your father who's telling you that you have just one job to do and go kill Claudius, even that act is tremendously fraught with peril and even the best of men can go awry in trying to carry out sacred orders. Yeah, so this is just not going to go away. So the criticism I've seen of the show is that it disappointed the hope of doing some kind of procedural thing with some mystery and some supernatural stuff, but not too much, and it shouldn't be confusing, and at the end you should not put your audience in a worse state than they came in. And I understand that this is how you lose in an entertainment business. Disappoint your audience, it's over for you. But I don't see any way around it. Oh, it's... and I think that by the numbers at least, Season 3 was not a disappointment. There's an old adage about you want to leave your audience wanting more. There's probably also an effect where you want to disappoint at least some people. What's the fun in creating something so tidally complete that there's nothing to do with it but spend five minutes on universal acclaim and then it just sinks into oblivion? We don't need to think or care about this anymore because it's perfect. Yeah, there's something to that. We are stuck in a situation where coming up with the answer means putting the thing behind you, going on to the next thing. You've seen the end, it's over, it doesn't matter anymore, find something new. And that's because we do chase 
place after some kind of self-understanding. But whenever we're faced with the difficulty of self-understanding, we'd rather find another way. We want to be drawn into the picture, but not to be part of the picture at the same time. So let's try and take another tack now. How has the show left you? What are your thoughts and questions? Oh, I think... It's very difficult for me to think about the show without thinking about my own position and trajectory in my own life, which I think is a testament to not just the power of the show in the way that any well-executed drama or artwork is powerful, but in that Lynch and Frost, who obviously deserves a lot of credit as the other half of the creative duo, specifically set the intention of making a piece of art that worked on a certain level of the uh, conscious to pre-conscious to subconscious. Somewhere in there, maybe a slice that goes through all three zones. But in that partially narrative, partially dreamlike, partially symbolic state. Although that's very on brand for Lynch, he really hasn't quite, in spite of it all, been given a canvas this broad before to be able to to maintain that state for his audience and for himself for just such a long stretch of time. I mean, we're talking, what, 18 hours here. Pretty much. And of course, there are people who have come in and said, oh, well, three things happened in that episode. And there's something to that, of course. But at the same time, the shooting script for this series was a single 400-page document. It was conceived of as a whole, and it was executed as a whole, and then it was divided up into parts so that it could be consumed. No one's going to sit down, really, still, today, and watch a single 18-hour piece of work. Not in the movie theater, not in the comfort of their own home, probably not even on an 18-hour transcontinental flight. As a result of the third season having the space to work in that way, I think it's all but inevitable that any dedicated viewer would be pulled by the show back into, it might not be too strong to say, a meditative state, reckoning with where they've been placed in the stream of time and of their life by the things that recur, the people, the habits, the patterns of thinking and the feelings, perhaps even the trauma or the hopes. In a lot of instances throughout season three, I think Twin Peaks revealed itself as a meditation on persistence and on what persists, on how things can recognizably persist over time, even as they change, and sometimes even as they are transfigured. And that creates certain problems for us and can even be terrifying in some ways or imprisoning, but it's hard to imagine how life could have its power and its capacity for grace in the absence of that persistence. So for me, it's been very hard to think about the show without thinking about myself, and not just in terms of the Oprah-esque mission of living your best life, but in terms in terms of being a human and seeing reflected back at you a demonstration of how the mystery of persistence in one's own life is not an isolated phenomenon and is not you're not a prisoner to your particulars but at the same time you emerge out of them in a way that I think is reinforced as an experience by the imagery and just the sonic textures of the show. So in terms of the recurring characters, you see a couple of basic alternatives. There are cases where the children replay their parents' lives. Shelley Johnson's daughter, like Shelley, she married the bad boy who is both tyrannic and whiny, and her mother is going back to another guy like that in her life too. Whereas the guy she had married, Bobby Briggs, he's changed to some extent. 
he's a cop now for one that seems to fulfill something that he had always wanted to do to protect the weak this has not done anything to remove the hurt and terror of his love for laura it still brings him to tears and shock but it's made him more responsible in other ways he does have a scope for protectiveness there are other kinds of characters who seem resigned to their situation they're used to being who they are hawk and the log lady have that relationship it's remarkable to what extent what they know fails to connect with what they might do and they're nevertheless not losing their minds knowledge without power is frustrating by itself but they're the more peaceful characters. And so the familiar sights of Twin Peaks do not give much reason for hope. There's something that's changed in that place. It seems like it can never be right again, if it ever was right in the first place. That's one big part of the third season to clarify something that maybe wasn't clear in the previous work. There's no going back for Twin Peaks to a situation where it's lovable. I'm not sure I've seen any example there of lives that are really rewarded, although to some extent Andy and Lucy I guess are married now, they seem to take things less tragically, but at the same time they have a tragedy of their own with their son. It's hard to find hope in a place like that. And it's hard to find hope even beyond the confines of the town of Twin Peaks. Philip Jeffries, who occupies such an important place in the narrative, you can't help but hold out hope for Jeffries to be revealed as ultimately one of the good guys. And then, of course, the hope that some manifestation of David Bowie himself will appear at some point uh, in the series, which, sadly, no, he's a teapot, one of many teapots, which is something that I'll have to think about more when the giant slash fireman gestures toward a very large and encompassing chamber which seems semi-subterranean and is full of teapots or teapots in waiting. What Jeffries has been reduced to, and he does seem to be quite displeased with his condition, such as it is, is also a harsh prefiguration of the sort of fate that awaits Dale Cooper, I think. And though I did suppose the other day that the apparently dire conclusion to the series was actually perhaps not as terrible as it seems, it does leave enough open that it is at least possible, perhaps even plausible, that there is a way out from where we're left. It still seems like a counsel against what we would normally think of as hope. Yeah, I agree with that. But on the other hand, there's supposed to be some insights gained. So one thing I noticed in this season that hadn't occurred to me before is to what extent people who sound stupid are just a bit good and maybe better than other people. They're in some way simply not wise enough to a wisdom that's corrupting. The gangsters are an example of that. Andy, of course, and Lucy are an example of that. I think from the original series, Major Briggs turned out to be an example of that. He started like a pompous son of a bitch. His son and the kids are going through a crisis and this guy is going on about psychological jargon about peace and calm. But it turns out not to be that person. It seems like the good sounds so stupid because it is in certain ways powerless or it's at any rate not effective. Which I think is the same thing as saying that the problem with us in terms of what we want out of stories is we want fictional images of power, not necessarily goodness. We identify the two just for the sake of the story. 
so these characters seem ridiculous when they're not really. I think there's something like that of course with Dougie as well. Dale Cooper undergoes this discipline I think it is. That's how I made sense of what happens through most of the series where he has to impersonate this Dougie Jones character. There is a kind of comedy there and the commentary on society where people take you to be what you're supposed to be in that situation and so this functionally retarded guy goes on with life sort of alright because people don't take one good look at him. Everybody is stuck with what they expect out of him. But there's also something to be said for the experience giving him his powers back and at the same time revealing a basic goodness that he lacks otherwise. There is something hopeful about it all, but it's not in the way that hope is certainly usually presented to us in film or on television. There are some happy endings that were given. They're just not the main dish. It's almost as if hope is something that can really only enter into the world for us at the margins or circumstantially. That if you want to be part of the main cosmic narrative, then you are obliged to risk hopelessness. The most you can do is create the possibility for hope in someone else's life who is going to be left at the side of the road before the main story comes to its crescendo. I think that brings us back to the theme of sacrifice. To restate what you were saying about the ambition to be heroic, it's a mistaking of self-understanding for something else, for making a difference as we say nowadays. The ambition to be heroic has something to do with saying that the cosmos is my personal problem at some essential level, my being who I am is a dramatization of something that really matters. That's taking on a burden that's bound to crush anyone, I would think. Oh, and it raises questions about what sort of person it is who presumes to think of themselves as someone who could maybe even volunteer for such a thing. Yeah, that's certainly a big deal with Cooper, but I don't think exclusively with him. If you know a bit about Twin Peaks, watching the show from the start, from the first season, inevitably feels like people setting themselves up for stuff they're not be able to deal with. You can't quite tell what the trap is going to be or how it's going to be sprung, but you know bad things are coming. And I think there's a lot to be said for that fear. It's the beginning of knowing that you don't have that much self-knowledge. You don't know what you're getting yourself into because you don't know yourself. We always want to say that it's not that we don't know ourselves, it's that we don't know the circumstances. We'd like to predict something and get power over some event. Then things would be alright. But I don't think that's how it works. The thing that drives you to get yourself into trouble is the thing that matters. And we know that Gordon Cole is also a character who has chosen to treat people in in a quite instrumental way for the sake of pursuing this particular mystery and or pursuing a very malevolent adversary for as long as it takes. (laughs) I don't think there's been quite as much attention directed at the Gordon Cole character as perhaps there should be given that this is Lynch himself playing this role and that so much of the plot and its advancement hinges on Cole's decisions and what Cole chooses to reveal and who he chooses to reveal it to and who he chooses to favor and how he chooses to favor them, what he sees, what he doesn't see. Very late in the series, he tells Rosenfeld, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you for 25 years this thing. That's shocking. Rosenfeld was just telling him, oh yeah, you're growing soft in your old age. 
far mm-hmm. from it. He's reaching mm-hmm. his limits in certain ways, but he's the opposite of soft. He's almost ruthless. And especially at a time when we now have the latest Aronofsky film hitting theaters, a film which, so far as I can tell, is specifically about the arrogance of male creativity, the heights of torment men will inflict upon their human instruments in the desire for their creation to be acknowledged and loved. Lynch is giving us, in a certain respect, a quite dismayingly similar tale, except for Lynch, it is not just the woman or the female that faces mortification and that poses the problem of love. It is Laura just as much as it is Dale, and those two cannot really exist without one another. Whereas I think Aronofsky is barking up the wrong tree in that regard. But for both of these guys, it seems there's an attempt to wrestle with our position vis-a-vis creation. What is it to be created? What sort of predicament is that? And who must pay the karmic debt for our created world? Yeah, Aronofsky's movie has been panned as a cruel, cruel, bad joke. I haven't seen it, but so far as I've seen of the story, there's something really the matter with it, something wrong. But at the same time, it's hard not to see this point about how much tyranny there is involved in trying to to control this one perfect thing and making it stick. Both in terms of what it means to want to be worshipped by an audience and also in terms of trying to suspend time to control things to make sure what end they will be coming to. Trying as a creator to overcome mortality as opposed to abandoning yourself to mortality knowing that what you've created will escape you. Oh well there's something at least potentially very wicked about the false humility of saying oh I the creator I'm reconciled to my passing from this world because my creation will live long, long after I'm gone. Lynch seems in a different position. He exaggerates what a fool Gordon Cole is throughout the show. This also seems to have been taken as bad overacting, but I think it's supposed to emphasize there's not a lot of control he has over events as they transpire. I think the deafness, as crass as it seems, it really does mean to say that he's bad at communicating because he won't listen to people. And that seems to be because he knows these things that nobody else knows because he won't tell them. And so much, therefore, lies on his judgment. But at the same time, he has removed his judgment from anybody else. He has to be master of events that he's not aware of. You could think of it as leadership as such. Gordon Cole seems silly up until he shows himself to be ruthless or capable of ruthlessness. But he also recalls, Clausewitz tells you, what are you going to do when you face reality? Well, the iron will of the commander has to make up for all the strange things that are going to pop up along the way. You can't predict them. They're going to get in the way. You have to plow through them. He's implying there, this is war. Whoever has to be sacrificed, whoever you have to trample on, you can't predict this. You just have to do it when it comes. I think there's some of that in Gordon Cole, too. He's also in the awkward position of having all of his lieutenants disappear. He's denied the opportunity to run roughshod or to use his foot soldiers in quite the way that you might expect a ruthless leader to use them. And at a certain point, he's in danger of running out of lieutenants. And their disappearances can't all be entirely pinned on his actions. These are all fairly self-possessed men, each of whom has his own apparently sophisticated complex of reasons and passions and interests for pursuing this mystery in its interlocking parts with such dedication. Um, 
And so there's a certain sadness that hangs around Gordon Cole as well. And some of it is how ruthless can you be when you're going up against death? Whether death in its terrifying immediate incarnation or in its slow wearing away of things done by time. It does cut a kind of sad figure. Let me tell you something else. It reminds me of an Edgar Allan Poe story where two guys go into a cemetery with a primitive phone. They've heard stories. One of them's waiting outside the crypt with the phone and the other one goes in. And the one who goes in who's supposed to report on what he has discovered. He's not forced into this, but he goes there to discover what there is. Just screams, goes insane, and that's the end of that. There are no second-hand reports of what he experiences. And I think a lot of that is true of Gordon Cole too. He doesn't have any experience of what he's done. So I think this is maybe a bit abstract, but whoever has seen some of Twin Peaks might find worthwhile thinking about the burden of the storyteller and the burden that hangs on the characters to come up with some kind of resolution or on the other hand to stay true to the crisis that moves everything forward in this show. What's mysterious about us that might turn dark. James, thanks a lot for joining me for this conversation. Let's do some of this again sometime. It's been thought-provoking, and I hope we're adequate to the occasion. It has been a pleasure. Thanks so much. All the best. Bye. Bye.